This is Annie Stevens Gleason, Minister for Worship and Incorporation here at the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer. We continue to have conversation around becoming beloved community. The Episcopal Church's long-term commitment to racial healing, reconciliation, and justice. Becoming beloved community represents not so much a set of programs as a journey, a set of interrelated commitments around which Episcopalians may organize our many efforts to respond to racial injustice and grow a community of reconcilers, justice makers, and healers. In this episode, we have Kate Harrelson joining us, a member of our Becoming Beloved Community Steering Committee. Welcome, Kate. Hi. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? (laughs) Uh, Well, um, I've been at Redeemer for about 10 years. Um, I was born, um, oh, I wasn't born in Cincinnati, but I was raised here. Okay. Left for a little bit, came back after college, um, and I am currently on the vestry at uh, Redeemer and um, participate in a number of other ministries occasionally. Um, yeah, that's about it for me. Yeah. And I'm white. That's, I think, important I think for the context is, of this. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, um, this podcast. <laughs> yeah. You've been part of this Becoming Beloved Community Steering Committee from the beginning? Yes. Well, yeah, I know that uh, Megan proposed it to, Megan Johnson proposed it to the vestry, and then I joined shortly after. Great. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so what have you learned while, while participating? In yeah. This? Yeah. Um, I've learned from the Becoming Beloved learning journey, which was an opportunity that all the Becoming Beloved ambassadors um, had to participate in. Um, The learning journey has been um, a very um, both uncomfortable and validating experience, I think. The sessions that we've had have allowed us to explore um, as a group, everybody participating, which includes people from... um, you know, white people and then, um, you know, our fellow Episcopalians of color. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to center that around whiteness. I'm just not confident in um, everybody's racial background. But um, it, they tried to have a diverse uh, group of folks participate. And um, it, it's been an opportunity for all of us to explore the history of the church, the history of the Episcopal Church its role in um, segregation, its role in perpetuating uh, white supremacy in Christianity, um, and it, its role in breaking that down, its, its responsibility. Um, and then for the white folks participating in that group, I think the, the personal journey has been really um, integral as well, that we've had to do some of those, um, that hard, you know, introspection and and asking ourselves some questions and really paying more attention to how we're talking um, and relating to each other in in the um, in the infrastructure of the Episcopal Church. So so part of this learning journey what Mm -hmm. what kind of stuck out for you um, that was your biggest or has been your biggest takeaway? Yeah um, I think so there there have been a couple of things. I came from a more, actually, so I was raised agnostic. Um, my parents didn't really um, ascribe to any specific uh, faith background. 
Um, my mom entertained my curiosity periodically by taking me to um, church communities that she found tolerable. <laughs> but um, so then I did probably the most rebellious thing I could do and join the Mormon church. <laughs> so um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And um, so coming from that, which is a very um, prescriptive, conservative church community, right, right. Um, just speaking broadly, I know that not everybody in, in the Mormon community um, ascribes to to those descriptors, but just speaking broadly. So coming from that to the Episcopal Church, I thought that I I felt very, like, awakened. I was like, oh, I'm so enlightened. I'm joining this, like, liberal church. Like, look at me. And um, I think that learning the true history of the church, the, not the one that we kind of gloss over, but the, the one that is actually um, entrenched in all of our ceremony and our geography and where church buildings are positioned and how, you know, the makeup of congregations, understanding that has um, deepened in me a commitment to bringing this social racial justice work to the Episcopal Church, because I do think that the the Episcopal community in general has this cerebral sort of, um, of air about it and that we're very logical and pragmatic and all very self-contained you know all of these are sort of stereotypes I think of of the Episcopal Church and and parishioners that choose to belong to it I should say um, the white normative um, right. you know uh, culture right. of the Episcopal right. Church specifically um, and so learning learning that has been uncomfortable yeah. and learning that even though I didn't grow up in this I think that I was able to, for a long time, sort of absolve myself of my own responsibility in addressing these issues because I didn't grow up in a Christian church um, or any church, but I, I have chosen to belong to this community now, and so I really do have, um, I have, I have a responsibility to um, to act on the, I love the word they use, missionary impulse, and to treat this with an evangelical spirit right. um, and, and bring that with me, you know, take the work that we're doing and, um, and bring it with me to Redeemer. So that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. What was the why for you? Why, why be involved? Yeah. Um, I think so. A lot of it is just, I've been doing this work um, professionally for a long time. And, uh, I, I work in public health. Um, and I, it's been hard to see progress when you're working on like large federally funded projects, which is a lot of what I do professionally. It's, it takes so much effort and so much time to see the needle move. Um, I really wanted to, I, I just feel an urgency yeah. and wanted to have a more local engagement. Um, and I don't mean to center it around myself and, and what I wanted, um, but that was some of it. Um, I also, uh, you know, watching my kids grow up in, in the neighborhood that we've chosen to live in um, and the schools we've sent her to, the daycare, I, I've just noticed... Um, and my kids are white, um, the, the permissions that, that they get sometimes. And I feel very protective of their classmates. Yeah. And I feel really, I, 
I feel very committed to raising white children to understand their privilege and to understand the impact they have the second they walk into a room. Definitely. Um, and we joke a lot. My, you know, my, whenever my son does something that's, I mean, he's only four, but whenever he's kind of a butthole, I just like, I'm like, hashtag white male privilege, like super, you know, <laughs> right, right. I make a joke out of it. But there is some stuff I think that we just let our kids get away with that wouldn't be okay um, for other kids necessarily just by, you know, the way our, our culture right, is currently. Right. Um, and so... The why is is really, you know, there's a self-serving piece of that to an extent that I want to see that impact. I want to I want to feel gratified more personally by the work that I'm doing, but also that I feel a commitment to Cincinnati and this community that I grew right. up in, that I moved back to and that I still see problems in. Um, you know, I think the first time I was awakened to it. Um, unfortunately, because obviously it existed long before this, but was when in 2001 when um, the uh, I can't remember his name. I'm so sorry, but the um, black teenager, which unarmed, was shot um, by a white cop, and the white cop was not convicted. And so that was the first time I think I really became aware of the the what that really means, what this racism right. and right. segregation, I mean, it kills people. Right. And so having, seeing that just really, I can't not do something. Right. I can't not be engaged and be part yeah. of the work. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were at convocation on Saturday. I was. Um, how was that for you? Yeah, it was um, really powerful. Um, I, I didn't really know what I was walking into. I had seen like an agenda (laughs) um, and I was like, okay, um, it'll be like church, right? No, it was not like church. (laughs) And I'll say first and foremost, walking into, so um, for those who didn't have a chance to attend, it was held at Proctor. Um, They set up this really large tent outside of um the main building between like the main building and the little chapel and um it was beautiful weather fortunately so everybody was kind of milling about and checking in and I walked into this tent and I was just looking around um at all of the people that were there and there were kids and there were um clergy and there were um you know lay leaders and it was just not the same um it was not the same church that I see every Sunday when I walk into Redeemer and I think that was the most profound thing for me that kind of hit me like this bolt of lightning like holy holy crap cow (laughs) I don't know what I could say holy things um this is not um I don't know if it's what I expected but I felt so when I saw that I felt so I I want to say cheated. I don't know. That's probably not the right word, but just like, wow, I did not know we had such a diverse community in this diocese. Yeah. Or at least a diverse group of people who are committed to this work. Right. And um, 
I was so moved by that, but also really saddened by it, just thinking about that that is further evidence, I think, of the segregation of the Episcopal Church, even in this in this region. Yeah. Um, so it was both super exciting, but really a little devastating um, and promising, and I think I, all the things, right? Um, but um, so that was sort of my first impression um, and then Stephanie Spellers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Canon Rev. I'm not good at these. You've heard my <laughs> religious background. I have no concept of any of these terms. So the Canon Reverend Stephanie Spellers, she was just, oh, she floored me. She was yeah, incredible. And she's I, wonderful. I think they recorded her. So please listen to it. Um, if, if you can, but she just really, um, committed everyone I think to the the spiritual responsibility of racial justice the the radical um you know the radical spirit of Christ that challenged these oppressive structures and I've I've said in the past um when I've sort of reflected on how I feel connected to Christianity and to Jesus and I feel most connected to um, the identity of his that is the enemy of the state, I think. Mm. And, <laughs> For sure. and, and, and I'm like, yes, like, you know, the way she talks was, is very diplomatic, but right. also a little, a little bit of like, it, it's time to burn this down yep. a little bit. Yep. <laughs> I don't want to like, no, no, no. Like so much, so much of her, so much of Stephanie's mm-hmm. work is that radical welcome and that, yes. tr- and, and so much of that, lies in transformation yes and, and while like let's burn this down that's also <laughs> I mean that's also some sort of transformation right like yes. we're looking at, at something completely mm-hmm. changing mm-hmm. and and um that unlearning and that yeah. that healing and that that awakening and that and it's and, so unpleasant I'll right? just say it's so unpleasant I think especially as a white person um, speaking for myself and probably for a lot of other white people, like it's just really unpleasant to um, learn these truths that every other parishioner of color, every other Christian of color, every other Cincinnatian of color has lived their whole lives. And we are just now, I, I don't want to say all of us, but uh, you know, a lot of white folks are just now sort of becoming aware of the that specific spiritual privilege um that we've had i think that there's this myth that as christians we sort of transcend some of that by being nice and that's just not enough yeah it's not enough yeah i mean even even that your language of that christian privilege yeah that that in and of itself Mm -hmm. there's a lot to unpack i think that's a whole nother uh-huh. I don't. I don't have the expertise yeah. for that. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> I'm other. still learning. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. you know she really um, helped. I think lend some language to some of the things that I've personally been grappling with, and um, I was so thankful that that she gave us that time. Good. Yeah. So she was incredible. There were yeah. other little workshops. On, yes, right? there are a few breakouts. Um, I participated in. Um, there were several, there were like eight total, I think. Okay. Um, and I think uh, Redeemer did a pretty good job of splitting up and trying to divide their time. But I spent my time in the ones 
dedicated specifically to becoming beloved. So the first session, um, and for those who are listening, all 12 of you, and plus my mom, who <laughs> are listening and may not be aware, um, there is <laughs> there are ambassadors, or there are supposed to be ambassadors for the Becoming Beloved work at every congregation in this diocese, um, and only 20... 20-ish participated in the learning journey. So um, this the convocation was an opportunity for all of the ambassadors to come together. And there can be multiple at a congregation. Like, we definitely have multiple uh, ambassadors here at Redeemer. But the first, so the first session, breakout session that we had was an opportunity for all the ambassadors to hear directly from the Reverend Sp- Canon Spellers <laughs> yep. and um, and uh, have some more intimate conversations with her. And um, she spoke much more candidly to us, I think, about the importance of this work than she had in the broader, um, in the larger meeting and about the specific responsibility of, of the ambassadors. Um, and then the second session was an opera, it was a Q&A um, for the, um, ambassadors and then the folks who have participated in the learning journey specifically, you know, about our experiences. And that was really, um, enlightening because, you know, we, I remember the one question that was posed specifically was about, um, how do we get white people in our congregations to understand their privilege and to um, to have to feel compelled. I don't. I don't want to say to feel brave. I I know that that language is used a lot, but I think it's 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 a little um, nuanced. Mm-hmm. So how you know how can we empower white people or compel them to say something when they recognize white supremacy coming out in in liturgy or in um, any kind of um, activity or engagement or ministry that we might have going on in our church. And um, I told this story about my husband, Mitch, and uh, I love this story because it was like, first of all, um, I was really surprised I even noticed anything. That was sort of a testament to me that constantly sort of working through this stuff on your own time and educating yourself with the myriad literature and, and, um, and, uh, books and shows and podcasts out there. When you spend that time, you do pick things up. It does happen. It can happen for you. (laughs) It happened for me. Um, but also, um, just that people can be open to these things when you, um, approach it with a certain amount of vulnerability. But my husband and I were talking one day and we were, he was making fun of me for my accent, mm. <laughs> for my Cincinnati accent. And um, it's not always that bad, but, uh, you know, he was just kind of poking fun at me. And and he said, well, I don't, I don't have an accent. And I was like, ooh, I was like, let's unpack that mm-hmm. for a second. Mm-hmm. Everybody has an accent. And he's like, what are you talking about? And, and he's from Idaho for, and Utah and Idaho, for those of you who aren't aware. And he, um, he, he just has, he, I see, okay, I can't even describe it because right, right. what he has is white normative male 
speech, right? right? And so I said this to him. I was like, you have an accent. He's like, no, I don't. No, I don't. I don't even know how to talk like him. I can't emulate <laughs> right. it. But um, And I was like, absolutely. you know. But what you have is considered normative. And he, of course, clutched his pearls and right. was very was a little defensive at first. And then as we talked about it, he was like, huh, yeah, like – you know, it was, you could sort of see these wheels turning and, and my husband is a very like self-aware person. And I, but I think for those of us who fit the, the norms, the white, you know, cisgendered normative, you know, um, standards, um, it's always jarring to learn when, you know, what we're doing or saying is, um, I don't know, is, is privileged even when we think it's something as benign as poking right. fun at somebody else's accent you know right. so anyway sharing that story just gave us an opportunity I think as a group that long tangent gave us an opportunity as a group to discuss um, how these things creep in to everyday language and interactions and if we can just start to pay attention to those things but also have um, the the grace now I'm saying this to white listeners it's incumbent upon uh us to talk to other white people about it and and having that grace now I would say that it is not the responsibility of folks of color to to fix this for us right Right. now they they will sometimes thankfully um I think um I have had those experiences and I'm super grateful for it um but it is it's on it's on white folks to do this. There's yes. enough out there yes. now for us to teach ourselves. Yes. So, um, yeah. So that's how that second breakout was. That was so long, but that one was really yeah, good, yeah, and no, I was thankful great. for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that we had talked before, and you had said you had that experience of when you got to Proctor that that your your experience of the Episcopal Church. Um, mm-hmm. as Redeemer was not what oh, you experienced yes. when you walked in. And yes. and just what was your feeling Thanks around that? Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, mm-hmm. how, what was your feeling around that when you yeah. when you saw that or experienced that, I, right. I suppose? Well, and this was part of, so um, the, the things I learned about Redeemer um, were sort of part of the whole learning journey, were things that I started to hear um, as I participated in that. And then it, it sort of... Um, you know, continues throughout all of these, um, sessions that we're having. And, um, essentially that, you know, Redeemer specifically has, a has a position, has an appearance, um, and has a reputation, uh, in the diocese of being, and I'm not speaking of diocesan leadership. I'm just speaking of other right. other parishioners at other um, other congregations. Other congregations. Yep. Yeah, that you know, Redeemer has a lot of resources, and those resources come from Redeemer's privilege, come from Redeemer's um, geographic location, from the appearance. Uh, and the demographics of its parishioners. Um, And I know that that's sometimes really hard to accept without challenging. Um, I think that for a lot of white folks, there's this um, 
feeling that I have what I have because I did the hard work. Um, I, we're, you know, we are where we are because we've been prudent as a congregation. Um, we've just been lucky. Um, there are a lot of labels that, that apply to privilege that are really just talking about privilege and Redeemer has it. Um, and people see that. (laughs) And I think that Redeemer as a body does not talk about that a lot. Um, oh, but I think that it's coming. Phil, (laughs) Phil brings it up regularly. Um, I mean, it's just, it's coming. And, um, I think we're starting to be more and more aware of it. Um, it's about time, right? And I'm saying that for myself as well. Um, and that's not that's not a mystery to everybody else. It's kind of like when you have spinach in your teeth and you've been walking around with it all day and nobody tells you but everybody mm-hmm. else sees. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's <laughs> and then a, you get home at the end of the day and you're like, <laughs> right, right. No, that's a, that's a wonderful example. It's a wonderful example. So, hey, Redeemer, yeah. <laughs> it's time to share the spinach yep. in your teeth. <laughs> Get that toothpick and pop it out. Um, is there anything else that, that, that you'd like to share that, that um, or is your memory has been jogged? Or... Yeah. Well, this is the second time I we've know. done this. So <laughs> I'm thankful, actually, I think, th- that we got it to do a second time. We got to do it a second time because... I had a lot of anxiety after the first one. I'm sure I messed things up this time too <laughs> and said things that were not right or sensitive or, or correct or anything. But, um, you know, I'm thankful that we've had this opportunity. I'm, I'm super thankful that Redeemer, um, as, aside from all the stuff I just said about Redeemer and its privilege, Redeemer is standing out right now as a church that um, has leadership support for this work and has um, really um, just jumped headfirst into it. And so I think that none of um, what we've been talking about is insurmountable for Redeemer if folks are willing to open themselves up to it and be vulnerable to it and make sacrifices. Um, it's it, it has to happen because, I mean, the reality is Racial justice is moving forward with or without us, right. and it needs us to to get there faster. But it's gonna happen with or without. You know, I really feel optimistic about that. But um, I think that Redeemer has an opportunity to um, really help propel the work forward and and change um, change just so dramatically as a result of it at the individual and at the institutional level. Very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Kate. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> Join us in our conversations here as we continue our commitment to becoming beloved community at the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer in the Queen of the Midwest, Cincinnati, Ohio.